Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Happy New Year, since this is the first episode of 2021. My guests today are from Sigma Lithium Resources, the Chief Strategy Officer, Anna Cabral Gardner, and her husband, the CEO, Calvin Gardner. There are many firsts in this episode. It's the first time I've talked with a project based in Brazil, the first time I've talked about hard rock in South America, and the first time I've had two members of a lithium management team on that happened to be married. Before I get to Anna and Calvin, just want to make a couple of comments about the uh, changing price situation out there in the lithium world. For those of you who have been paying attention, it's become very obvious that lithium carbonate is very tight in China and the price has started to uh, jump fairly quickly, going up over 25% in the last couple of months and dragging hydroxide up with it. And then the other irony is, as I've said many times, that I believe the hydroxide premium would disappear over time. Right now in China, battery quality lithium carbonate is selling at a premium to hydroxide. I am not saying that this is the change I was talking about, but it is an indication that that is the way of the future. In Korea and Japan, you still see hydroxide selling at a premium to carbonate, but that premium continues to narrow. And I believe over the next few years, that trend will continue. It's become increasingly obvious that all the voices out there that said hydroxide is the future of lithium chemicals were simply incorrect. I've continued to maintain that the market's about balance. Hydroxide will grow faster than carbonate over the next four to five years. However, in 2025, I still believe that lithium carbonate will be the higher volume of the two lithium chemicals. It won't be a big difference. But those who posited that hydroxide would be 80% of the lithium market in 2025 just got it wrong. With that said, let's get to the episode Anna and Calvin, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. We start off with the backstories. And since Calvin's such a gentleman, I think we'll do ladies first. Anna, tell us how you got to this momentous occasion. What was your path to lithium? Well, I mean, Calvin and I had always had very independent careers. I had my 30-year-odd career in investment banking both in New York and London. And then Calvin was in mining operations at Anglo-American. And then later on, he was um, an investor operator of mines in Africa. So very independent, very, very different careers. So, so Sigma really is our first project together. It, but it inter- it's interesting because initially it wasn't really meant that way. I mean, but in hindsight, we're very fortunate it happened because our knowledge bases really complement each other. 
and Sigma would not have achieved all of this uh, so rapidly without both of us at the helm of this business doing, focusing on the areas where each of us is an expert, right? So on to Calvin. So how did um, you enter the lithium world, Calvin? Well, you know, Joe, I've, I've always been in, in, in mining, right? So there's no accident there. Um, and um, we, we were sort of finishing up some projects in, in South Africa at the time. There was some work being done in Mozambique on, on some pegmatites uh, that was interesting. Um, and we, um, we, we really went to, to look at, at that. And that really sort of started pushing at least looking at these minerals. So we moved back to Brazil. Uh, we moved to, across to Brazil in 2011, looking at essentially what, what was available and specifically looking at pegmatites. So I was looking at pegmatites to the north of the country, obviously here as well, in, in this region, not just in this town, uh, and then focused you know, with that to, to do that. I, you know, we, we were aware that this area was, uh, at, at one stage, um, Sons of Gualia had sort of taken some some interest in this area uh, and that obviously was a push to go towards looking what was actually happening and then it one thing led to the next using some of the information of of these previous um, companies you know we started to develop this asset so your website says sigma was founded by green investors and since there's a lot of green in your background literally as i'm talking to you you want to talk a little bit about your path to green and why that's important to you? Yes, absolutely. So when Calvin made that investment at, um, at Sigma, he had a, a, a private equity partner that invested through a portfolio company. So that portfolio company was in steel refractories and he was sold. So this is how him and I became partners. So when that company was sold, a change of control provision kicked in and then for Calvin's group. So then my partners at ATEM decided to acquire that option and become co-controllers of Sigma with Calvin. So that's sort of not only how Sigma became 200% green, but also how we got married again, because as you know, a partnership it's just like a marriage. It's actually much harder than a marriage. So at ASAN, we had that ability. We had that mandate, right, to engage in private equity investments with this focus on what was then called responsible investing. So at the time, but it's interesting because responsible investment opportunities at the time would stay away precisely from the areas where one could have a significant impact in carbon emissions and in environment, which were natural resource-related areas given the history of those assets worldwide. So at the time, our investment committee was only focused on three things. One, whether EV was not a fad, meaning they wanted to be sure that because lithium was a niche market, I mean, remember, this is 2015, right? This market would actually grow and EVs would become mainstream. It wasn't obvious for them at the time. Two, that we would have to commit to develop this mining investment in a completely different manner, in a sustainable manner, meaning different than what had been done here and globally before. As you know, 15 was right after the first uh, tailing dam disaster in Brazil. So after that collapse and mining started to develop a very poor reputation amongst uh, 
investors globally and here. So our commitment to develop sustainably was key to get it through. And then obviously third was governance because we were married. So we had to create instruments where there would be significant checks and balances for minorities. And, and ultimately they would have veto in key decisions around the business, which we carried through into our lives, uh, into Sigma's existence as a publicly traded company. So like examples, like I would not commit to get a salary or stock for a period of time. So even to this day, I'm basically a sustainability bonus for Sigma, right? I don't cost anything <laughs> to Sigma shareholders. So there was quite a lot, there was quite a lot that was put in place while we were still private by our investment committee that was carried through and allowed us to successfully run this uh, as a publicly traded company. Okay, I've got, before we get into the project, I have one question. I spent a lot of time in Brazil it, during a period of time in the 90s when we had to get permits to import lithium into the country. It was a strategic mineral. CBL had the local market cornered, I guess government fiat, I don't know. But what is the status of lithium now in terms of, are there any restrictions or do you have to get any permits to ship the stuff out? Well, there are restrictions and the restrictions date back to the 60s and they're similar to the Chile's because they, 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 these restrictions date back to a time when lithium was considered to be nuclear uh, material. So, but on the other hand, just like in Chile, they have not been a roadblock uh, for the industry to flourish. Think about, you know, Chile uh, development since the 60s and how it flourished as this great jurisdiction, right? So some of this current regulatory is in process of being updated for what we call lithium in the 21st century. Uh, we elected a business-friendly modernizer government, which on the economics, Ministry of Economics is led by a former banker. And he was also a former uh, venture capitalist. So he understands that this regulatory needs to be modernized so that Brazil establishes its place in the industry. But so far, the kind of regulatory that still exists as a carryover from the 60s is not really a roadblock at all for, uh, for the country to develop, especially when you look at the other minerals um, in that list, you know, they've all done extremely well, like niobium, right? Brazil is the largest global producer of niobium. So we just see this as, you know, another piece of regulation that needs to be updated to the 21st century. Okay, and we have the right government to do it at this point with the right leadership. Um, I don't see this as an impediment uh, at all. You've got an interesting project. You've got a world that's dominated by one jurisdiction in hard rock and, and you're the, you're the new guys. Take us through the project timing, the asset itself, and when you intend to go to market and just tell the story, if you would. So, yeah, the, you know, it's obviously a brownfield site. And I think this is, this is obviously a, something that's missed by a lot of people. But it had been producing sort of a, a, a multi-mineral, in fact, uh, 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 um, uh, products here and, and being sold sold both locally and, uh, and internationally, obviously on a smaller scale, but it was obviously the case. So it, the, the project itself is, is in an area which is quite well known. Um, it's a, 
one of the larger pegmatite swarms in the world. And, you know, obviously for us, that was, that was pretty important. And, and the fact that, you know, it was a producing asset when, when we purchased it. So what we've done is obviously developed this now at a much larger scale, uh, rather than, you know, a small scale where they were feeding mainly ceramic industry in the glass industry. We have organized our structure to tackle firstly the, the, the past producing mines, uh, where we've worked on four of them. We had nine, in fact, lithium mines now specifically. Uh, and we're developing them, Joe. And when I say developing them, meaning making them 43-101 compliant, uh, and then, um, and then on, on the back of that, able to, um, to put them into production. So that has obviously happened now through this period. We, we, we did a huge amount of drilling here in this area so far, over 52,000 meters of drilling, built up a resource, and then did a feasibility study and built up a reserve. So right now, then, on the Shusha project, we go in what we now call the pre-construction phase, which is the feed, front-end engineering design, where we will do around 30% of the total engineering uh, and go into then construction thereafterwards. So the feed, uh, we're using Primero to help us with, with that and put that together. Um, and that should be complete by, um, by uh, end of April. So in theory, then one goes into construction uh, after that. So that's the, that's the main course of work. There's a lot of things happening on site in terms of, yes, that's the feed, but there's certain things having to feed into that, uh, you know, excuse the pun, but information into that front-end engineering project as a total. Uh, one of them is geotechnical information. So we're doing geotechnical drilling where we're going to put the plant, so where the foundations are, the crushers, etc., and the rest of the plant for that matter. That's happening now currently. And as well as the mine, um, we're doing further geotechnical work on both the pit as well as the waste piles to increase our confidence levels now. And quite frankly, going into what we call the execution of the mine plan. So this is like the final final of, of, um, of being able to do that. So that's... A, where we are, uh, and it's planning to be a, a, essentially a 12-month uh, construction period, Joe. If the uh, market behaves as it appears to be behaving, you're probably going to hit a very uh, good time to be selling concentrate. Uh, I don't know how close you are to it, but... Uh, the buzz this week, and I've spent a lot of time on the phone from from Turkey to Shanghai talking to different people, and prices are going up, starting to go up. You know, we haven't really seen significant moves in spodumene yet, but if the market's tight and with what's happened strategically with consolidation and WA and companies like Abelmarl trying to be judicious in how they bring capacity on, you should be uh, sitting in a good spot for when you are able to start up. In that vein, tell us a little bit about your view of the market in the future and where you fit in vis-a-vis, -vis, say, Western Australia in people's minds. Well, I mean, 
we we are of the view we're developing the project with the with the view of markets will stay where they are and one point that calvin was mentioning is that we we have another work stream related to increase the output for january 2023 and that involves developing the second deposit so again this is number two out of seven right uh where we could potentially double the output to 440,000 tons total for delivery in 2023, out of which half of that is pre-sold. So the 220 is is the piece of the output that we're gonna be now in the process of selling. We have gotten quite a lot of uh, positive response from our existing clients and that's what's driven us to open up the second work stream. Why is that? Because when you look at the picture of supply today, we, we always track where the low cost supply is going to come from, meaning companies that can profitably produce lithium at the current prices. When you map it out, you can see that to meet the 2023 demand, there are not a lot of additional low cost sources of lithium, Sigma being one of them. So that's what drove us to add phase two, because both phase one, which is sold out, phase two that will come to the commercial market um, are low cost sources of, of, of lithium. And, and this is the base of our commercial success. So the other interesting point is that for prices to remain at current all-time lows, and again, that's our base assumption, all of that low-cost supply will need to materialize on time for 2023 de deliveries. And you, of all people, Joe, you know which, the, which these sources are in addition to Sigma. So if that doesn't happen, one would have to reactivate the dormant sources of supply, which are the high cost producers in Australia. But that could only happen at higher prices because they do need to have profitability, right? So this is the conundrum of prices today, the way we see it. Well, I don't want to offend my friends in WA, but let's just say the way I view the market is there's green bushes and then there's kind of everybody else that gravitates around a, a, a mean cost. Yeah, some are lower, but green bushes is kind of far and away uh, the best asset. And if you read the recent documents that came out when uh, Tanchi sold part of their interest in green bushes, at least at the holding company level, uh, there was some interesting information on cost there because a lot of people have made assumptions about green bushes cost that were fanciful. I've been following green bushes for 30 years and the costs keep going up because it's been operating for a long time. And, you know, it's uh, low, the lowest cost doesn't last forever. So frame your, what you feel your cost structure will be vis-a-vis $400 spodumene wasn't enough to keep all the capacity that came on operating. I, I firmly believe that in the new world order, as EVs evolve, uh, if you want to keep Western Australia operating, you're going to have to have a price of five to 550 FOB. And otherwise the expansions don't get done and everybody can't operate. Where do you fit on that cost curve? You know, DFS, it's, it's around about 340, right? Um, but that in fairness, and I have to quote that, you know, because that was the public number. But the point was that, you know, that was actually done at the exchange rate 
rate of 3.85 to the dollar. We are 100% REI based in terms of cost. Well, almost 100%. We import the ferrosilicon. The rest is all REI based. At 5.22, it obviously makes it quite a big difference. So, you know, we, we will be a little bit lower that in dollar terms, in REI terms, um, you know, it is what it is. But it, I think that is one advantage, obviously, for it. And obviously, the things like electricity and things like that here are, are relatively cheap. So we come off a very good base here, Joe. And I think that's the point. Um, and mining costs are not prohibitively expensive here either. So I think we're in a, quite a strong position. But the main driver of costs for Sigma is the processing cost. It really is the biggest driver for us. And that's simply because we have a very clean ore in situ, something I've spoken to you before about. And the cleaning of it in terms of then getting the recovery and starting at pretty reasonable grades at 1.5% sort of average grades without having difficulties with huge amounts of mica and amphibolite and, you know, irons, that in situ we don't have it. So it's, it's a, it, it, it simplifies the process. And once you simplify a process, you simplify your cost structure. So the processing costs are very competitive for that. And we get really good yields. So we're in the, in the yields of, you know, the high 60s just with the DMS. And I think that's where the helping is coming from. Uh, for, for, for When you put the whole package together, we, we're very competitive on costs. Yeah, One, on a bankable feasibility study basis, I mean, all the, the, the potential lenders that we have received these commitment letters from, their calculation with the updated exchange rate, and they use five, they don't even use the current rate, comes to $289 a ton CIF China for the cost. And that's on a processing cost of uh, $62 per ton. Uh, so that's 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 the source of competitive advantage, as Calvin was saying. That those numbers are substantially lower than uh, some of our peers, the junior peers, uh, in Hard Rock. Well, we've seen in the past few years a lot of projects, a lot of junior miners, and a lot of uh, disappointed investors. My contention's always been that if you're a junior the best thing you can do is go get a good partner and form a great team. So let's take those in sequence. Talk about your partner or partners and uh, how that fits into your long-term plans to leverage this asset. Well, we, we're very proud to say that we have probably the best partner one could hope for, which is a, a Japanese large trading company, which is Mitsui and, Com and Company in Tokyo. And now actually also part of the Berkshire Hathaway Warren Buffett portfolio. So we're thrilled. They bring a set of skills to the commercial and marketing side of this business that we would not be able to replicate. And, and the relationship started when we... Mitsui and Sigma got together to test the market using the large scale samples that were coming out of our pilot plant. We've been producing large pilot scale with a pilot plant on site since 2018. And at the time, it was already clear that we could produce profitably this high purity, sustainable lithium concentrate because all the features 
around water tailings and power that will exist in a commercial production plant existed in a pilot plant. So from 2018 onwards, the strategic alliance with Mitsui that closed, uh, the transaction closed in March 2019 evolved significantly so that now we actually have the ability to jointly deliver this high purity uh, lithium hydroxide in certain contracts, 57% to tier one cathode makers, both in South Korea and Japan. That's really unique. So as you know, they're, they're two different kinds of cathode makers. So to be able to make the cut with these tier one cathode makers, it's part, is enabled by three elements, right? But it's, it's part the high purity battery grade lithium concentrate that comes out of our plants uh, in Brazil. But part is this decades long trust relationship and credibility relationship Mitsui has with these very tier one cathode makers to whom Mitsui supplies currently nickel, cobalt, manganese, you know, a combination, right? So, so this, is, this is the key feature of this sort of evolution of our partnership. And we're very pleased with that because it created the latitude for us to essentially, in, with Mitsui, for us to achieve um, a higher profitability related to engaging in executing another step of the, of the value chain. Uh, for for the chemical lithium product. So to to cut to the chase, basically you're saying that you will have downstream participation in chemicals via your partnership with Mitsui. That's yes. That's what that's the way we, I'm hearing it. <laughs> yes, we, which we is are, a good thing. Basically, it's a good thing, and we do it through the same process as the majors did. I mean, through uh, third party arrangements. So by owning the raw material, owning the balance sheet and owning the, 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 the customer relationships, we were able to profit share, profit share. So there's no CapEx here. It's a profit sharing arrangement with Mitsui through which we are able to deliver this high purity lithium hydroxide uh, in South Korea uh, and Pan. This interests me because the model I used when I was living in Asia, I had a Japanese trading company for a partner for an established player because that was the best way to participate in the market for me. They handled, I think we had stocking points in five different places in Japan. And as even a major, we we never could have achieved that. It would have yeah. been too would have been yeah. too costly. You know, back in the 90s, I was going over every six weeks before I just moved there. But we just, without a partner like that, you really can't uh, get deep uh, with these guys, in, in my opinion. I don't want to steal your thunder, but I mean, you got, you're not the first one to do this, but it is a great strategy. <laughs> but, but we're copying you, Joe. <laughs> but, but that's what we see. I mean, we, we've been basically looking at the successful <laughs> majors. And we, we tried to, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel. So the concept was, what is it that they do well and successfully? How can we replicate it? So we looked at your example with the other Japanese trading company. Uh, we looked at the current example, of two of the large majors, owners of mines in Australia, totally imparted their material through those third-party relationships with incredible Chinese partners, incredible chemists, incredible, incredibly knowledgeable. So we figured... What are the actual conditions for this to be replicated? Well, top-notch, high-purity raw material, 
decades-long relationships with the customers, with the cathode makers, tier one cathode makers is a relationship of credibility. And then third, balance sheet. So between Sigma and Mitsui, we put together these three sort of necessary conditions for the success of this venture. We've achieved astounding commercial success. Phase one is sold out. And if we had more to deliver in January 22, we would have sold. This is why we're moving forward with anticipating phase two to January 23, because these very same customers are asking for more material. And we, as of now, we're getting ready to, to deliver because again, the credibility comes from when we say we will deliver, we will. It isn't like we're going to be selling air. So we want to make sure that, you know, the feasibility and all the checks and balances and the proven and probable reserve and the metallurgy is all in place for the high purity certification. We'll follow the same steps as we did in phase one, go through the pilot plan, certify the, the samples and so on and so forth. And then uh, we will, uh, at that stage, green light construction on the second module, which probably will happen at the time we start producing the first module. Okay, let me throw you a curve here. You are very quick to articulate your ESG CV. You are very quick to talk about that. Yeah. What you see now is, I won't call it the flavor of the day, but it's a new trend. Europe. Europe's going to need material. Europe's going to need feedstock. Europe is much more ESG sensitive, at least on paper, than anybody else. When you look at your long term, if you were to continue to build this out, how does Europe fit into your plans or doesn't it? Well, we were fortunate because as we became, a, when we were private, that was the license for the capital that, that, that we managed. And Calvin and his private equity partner uh, had started it that way. So we, we were able to get the same license to execute exactly the same way from our public market investors. And that's really fortunate because that was 2018, 17, when they started to, to, to have the, to become partners at Sigma. We were very specific in the way we wanted to address this because of the jurisdiction we're in. We felt that mining as a whole had its social license at risk in this country because of the tailing dams issues sure. and the deaths associated with that. So there was no other choice at the time in 2015. So it's around three key elements, mining in general, how you handle water, how you handle tailings, uh, and slash your processing plants. And then thirdly, um, the source of your power, right? The energy that powers your plant. So these three elements become scope one and scope two. So when you look at what we've done across the board, and I'll pass it on to Calvin, it's a standout in mining practices and mining as a whole. Our investors are proud of that because at the time, putting, for example, the dry stacking circuit in the water recirculation circuit added to that capex of the DMS, and it still does, 15%. But we had that license. And the way we saw is that our returns were not altered substantially because this is a phenomenal asset. So because we have this world-class asset, we figured that you know, we could actually develop it as a model of sustainability for the country 
and actually show that a small company, a mid-sized company could actually lead the dialogue in uh, developing a sustainable mining operation. So that was the driver at the time. What's happened is that it's gone global because in battery materials, when you look at the value chain, we ended up also compare, being compared against some of our peers that weren't entirely focused. But the way we see it is in this value chain, more than in all the other value chains, our very existence is tied to sustainability because ultimately that's what that end customer wants when they purchase that EV. They want to know they're making a difference. They're not shifting carbon across, across the globe towards the upstream. So we believe this is actually the perfect value chain in mining to uh, create awareness and to lead those innovations and that dialogue in being a model of sustainability. Our entire industry has that duty, I believe. Okay, but being a model of sustainability necessary for you, that's all great. My question is a little different. Green premiums. Mm-hmm. Mm. You're not gonna get a green. You're not gonna get a green premium in China. I'm sorry. I, I don't think um, you're gonna get a green premium anyway. Okay. This that, is a, this that's is a the big, question. This is a big, yeah. There's you no answered the question. Look, I was giving an example. I was at the LME Sustainability uh, Forum. It was fascinating because they put us, the ICMM, and Unilever because in the consumer industry last decade, that was the debate. So look at what happened in the consumer industry of organics with you know more sustainable products. Over time, it evolved into the premium. What they're saying at LME is that we're observing the same way speed has changed in the adoption, a fast consumerization of battery materials because that customer cares. So I do not believe in green premiums and I believe that's our burden is to do all of this while remaining sustainable and green, not expecting a premium. Now, here's the interesting thing. This unexpected demand we've had for 22-23, we know is related to the fact that commercially that has become an advantage. So no premiums, but commercial advantage. There's certain customers, they're very keen to talk to us because we're quantitatively able to demonstrate around scope one, scope two, mining, so water, tailings, processing, and wow. energy, right? These three elements, how different and how sustainable the product is in a metrified ISO 1400 manner. So this is this is the green premium. It isn't a premium. It's a commercial advantage. So you're saying, field. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but if, if taking all the two of you have just said, basically you're saying that being green is now the baseline. It's oh, it's yeah. the it's the playing field, and and well, you're yeah, well, you were there I, early. Yeah, we we would have I, I would have said it even differently, Joe. And I've made these presentations and conferences that you know I think you were there, but I've said at a time you know I had some guys sort of sniggers, I guess, because I used to say, I said you know at one stage it was sort of the cherry on the top this whole thing about ESG now it's the pillar holding the whole cake up so if you want to be in this and we're talking about climate change and that's what lithium is supposed to be doing you better be um, compliant in your own home and it's going to in my view get more and more and more it's not going to go away Uh, I've already had two major funds come and audit us here by the way already okay 
and these guys are very, very serious about it. Uh, and right now we're getting now an official LCA um, certification. certification being done here. Yeah. Certification. So it's all very good to talk about it, right? But at the end of the day, let's just get a certificate done by an independent auditor to come and do this. So, Joe, I think I think it's going to be a must, in my opinion, not yeah. a nice to have. You don't really have to go further than the mining industry for that. We we experienced how mining almost lost its social license in this country as a result of, let's say, misguided ESG practices. So globally, it's a similar phenomenon. When you look at the pension funds, Church of England, the Swedish Pension Board driving these initiatives, investors driving it in a supranational move towards making sure companies in their portfolios abide by certain basic guidelines. I mean, this is basic in some of, in some of these instances, right? You can see that it, the genie is out of the bottle globally. So for, for me personally, it's a delight because I think on the, on the curious side, I've been called a hippie for a while <laughs> in certain mining circles, yes. Well, apparently um, you're married to one too. I mean, look at the guy. He's just sitting there looking like he's, he's, he's ready to go to Burning Man. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so I've been hey, called man. a hippie. We've got to be ready count. for everything here, Joe. I know. I lost count in, in this country how many times I was called a hippie because of these sustainability and environmentalist practices. And, and I say that now the same way the people in tech say is the rever revenge of the nerd, I say this is the revenge of the hippies in, in environmentalism, right? <laughs> so well, if, at one point, I think there's awareness. It's, it's, it's one planet we all share, right? I would have found it troublesome if you had kind of built in a green premium into your economics. That's yeah. really... Yeah part of the question and I, and I totally agree this is a it's becoming a baseline and I think more so than your competitors in WA as you said you had to do it in Brazil for particular reasons because of the whole social license bit which is not you know currently a big issue in, in other jurisdictions so no that that all hangs together for me not that it matters okay Calvin does yeah so what are your top three challenges? If you had to just look at everything, what are the top three challenges you have to getting this project spitting out high quality concentrate? All right. That's very easy. People one, people two, and people three. <laughs> and then throw in just on top of it all, I'm trying to do this in a COVID uh, pandemic on. So okay. it's a massive task it really really is a complicated situation so everything else in my opinion yeah. pales into insignificance yeah okay to that problem which joe I, at this stage i don't have half of the answers never mean all the answers this is going to be a little more complex than we than we've ever imagined and fortunately it is what it is for example primero cannot leave australia Think about this for a second. Yeah. <laughs> How does that affect me? Yeah. You know, what? Yeah. It's really going to be tough, my friend. This is, a, this is a big issue right at the moment. It'll go away, of course. But in the time frame we're going to be working, we're going to have to be managing it super closely. We have ideas and we're working around it. And there's a huge amount of discussions going on this. But it's, uh, it's, it's a big hill to climb. 
and that's that was what was involved in the planning we did in August and September. Like we had to rejuggle our teams and we made it very clear in our letter to investors in the MDNA, we had to rejuggle all of our teams to plan for a winter. It's exactly what you said, meaning we could not be in a situation where February would arrive and we would not have teams. So we moved people across. Calvin moved his entire team and his wives and everyone from various parts of the world to Araswai. He's an Araswai. So we had to do an enormous amount of localization in what we do uh, and becoming global, right? Meaning the global teams are involved, but then they use you know, the, 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 the local teams, trusted partners, in order to actually carry out execution that, that requires physicality. So, so in August yeah. and September, this was the challenge. It took us 60 days to kind of plan human capital. And then you have the human aspect, like, you know, parents get sick, elderly parents, uh, you know, suffer from COVID, families suffer from COVID. I mean, my whole family was seriously affected uh, by COVID at a time when we were executing uh, like an equity offering. And you have to, it's people, right? You have to make sure your people are okay and you're protecting them. And, and then you have to make sure the project is okay and you're protecting the project. So it's challenging. It's very challenging. Well, the, the people, people, and people the answer is, is the right answer. I mean, if you ever listen to this podcast and I get asked what I think the most important thing about a project is, assuming you have at least a mediocre resource, it's, it's the people, it's your team. And what did I miss? What would you like <laughs> to convey that I didn't ask you about? I mean, this was a great conversation. Yeah, no, I think, Joe, you've, 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 you've answered everything. You know, we try and do things pretty, you know, systematic here. So it, all things are running. Canada are doing those metallurgical tests for me as we speak. Um, I expect the first HLS test coming out now, just on the 24th. So things are running, even though we, we, we obviously, there was a bit negative in terms of all this COVID. Things have been running, maybe not at the pace that we it was but it was it's running and this is the main thing and Primero are working remotely and we had a I had a big call with Primero today with the engineers involved it's working it's not that it's not and you know and then we're taking a lot of precautions here we work on site we live on site so we try and avoid contact we measure temperatures every day there's a lot of that going I try and keep teams separate various technical teams staying in different places, keeping them separate. But bottom line is, you know, I think the project is going, you know, going on very nicely. On time, um, on time, know. on budget. Yeah, yeah. So and, 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 uh, and, and we're getting, we are getting, you know, a bit of wind behind our sails. The Development Bank of Brazil being now involved, you know, it's such a huge thing for us. It's something I've really wanted for a while. Um, and it it shows massive local support, and it, it's more than just the money, Joe. It's a belief in it. They want to see their things, the, the area developed. They've been here twice, had meetings with me, took them around site. They, there's a lot of enthusiasm. So the wind, you know, in my sail, so to speak. So for me at the moment, it's 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 you know it's a pity about this pandemic, but. The, it really is the time to move, and and we're moving, and that's the fact. So yes. yeah, you know, it's it's very solid at the moment, and it's always solid when you've got big support like that. You know, so if the project was rated uh, here in Minister Eyes as strategic for the state, and the State Development Bank, you know, has giving us seventy five million reais, which you know, is 
is a significant sum of money. Significant. So, I, yeah. Significant, yeah. so I'm delighted. I'm delighted. Well, Calvin, if you're happy, I'm happy. And that's all. That's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I guess we're we got only got one other order of business. Go ahead, Anna. Yeah. No, I think w- w- the point was that we we you know us we never understate the challenges you know, and and that's what we try to do in the podcast, but on the good side, on time, on track, production coming out of the gate first quarter 2022. I mean, despite yeah. all of this, which is. You know, yeah. an incredible challenge. And, and so that's what we're trying to yeah. do. We're trying to be extremely transparent in terms of, you know, the challenges. It's, it's 24-7 working. It's insane. Well, it, it, yeah. looks to, it looks to me like I've challenged Calvin's ability to sit and be on a podcast time-wise because he's got stuff to do. But before, <laughs> he, before he gets off, I want to ask him, one rapid fire question, and then he can click off. And I'm going to ask you a few more than that, Anna. Calvin, if you could conjure up any soul that has ever lived on this planet and have dinner with them, who would you pick to have oh, dinner with? Oh, that was with? so easy, Joe. There's only, Dude, the only it's guy a softball question. Is... It's a softball question. Tesla. Can go. Tesla, Tesla, okay. Yeah. All right. Hey, there's Nicole, a great I'm electrical engineer, well, there, Joe. I'm an electrical a, engineer. Tesla's the guy I want to talk to. Well, you <laughs> what you need to do is listen to the there's a podcast about the life of Tesla. And oh yeah, I've I've I, oh I didn't know. I watched oh, yeah, the movies, no. the documentaries. They're fascinating. There's a no, there's a good podcast. It's about his life. It's really detailed. I mean, it goes into all sorts of stuff. So if you're a, a Tesla guy. All right, Calvin, you are dismissed from your podcast duties for the day. Thank you very Thank you, much. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, you, guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're welcome to go. And then it will be Anna's turn to answer less easy questions. Thanks. <laughs> Don't leave me here. <laughs> okay. What is the last book you've read? The last book I read. Um well, I'm reading a book on gravitas, which is fascinating. Uh, Carolyn Goiter, she's a, a UK artist. And uh, anyway, that's I'm currently reading it, actually. What is the most significant personal lesson you have learned during COVID? Resilience. It tested, it tested me in every possible way. At one point, as you know, my entire family was ill. Uh, my father, my brother, when the ICU, I mean, it was, it was very challenging. And this was on the month we were doing this uh, equity offering. So, you know, the, and then right after, uh, right after that, my older son went to the ICU. So it, it was, it was resilience. I mean, the ability to withstand pressure and go back to its original form in literally in, in the literal meaning physics meant it for resilience. It was very tough. I had a very tough uh, winter, right, uh, for us, which is summer for, for you guys. Okay, an easy, easy question. What is your favorite meal? Oh, my favorite meal, it's pizza. <laughs> okay. And finally, since we've already determined that you are a hippie, what's your, yeah. favorite, what's your favorite band? 
my favorite bands. Oh my God, there's they're just so many. They're just so many. We're slightly different generations, right? So I like the police, U2, uh, Pink Floyd, um, you know, Dire Straits, uh, just sort of. We're, you know, well, we're not that different then. I got I got all those guys on my playlist. Yeah, especially Mark exactly. Knopfler. I mean, come Mark on. Mark Knopfler. Oh my God, I love him. Yes, okay. exactly. I don't know how old you think I am. I mean, I, we are a little different. No, because when you, when you talk to people, they're like, "Oh, Grateful <laughs> Dead and 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 Led Zeppelin." Yeah, I like them, but I didn't really live, you know, that era, right? But I got Pink Floyd, Dire Straits, plenty. So okay, yes. all right. I'm gonna bring this to a close. Thank you for for being on the podcast, and uh, we look forward to following your project. Thank you for having us. And there you have it the first episode of 2021 which with the surge in uh, spot pricing both of industrial and battery grade uh, lithium chemicals in china and the rise in many of the lithium share prices set the stage for a very interesting year if you listen to the podcast you know that i have been talking about a tight market happening uh, certainly by Q1 of 2022, and what we may be seeing is just the beginnings of that. Tier 1 pricing for lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide in Japan and Korea hasn't uh, begun the rise that we've seen in China, but as I have often said, it, things tend to happen first in the Middle Kingdom. From my perspective, it's still a little bit early to assume that uh, tier one pricing in Korea and Japan is going to jump in the same way uh, we've seen the spot price jump in China. But we are going to see it happen. It's just a matter of trying to call the timing, which I am watching and waiting. And when I think I, when I, think I can make a good prediction, I will do it. Uh, this is a little different than 2015 to 2017. I have recently written a LinkedIn article talking a little bit about that, uh, if you want to check that out. But uh, again, I will be doing a short podcast that I will put on my website. It won't be going out to the normal channels, talking about both price and uh, just my feeling on the market 2021 uh, into 2022. So with that, I will leave you with a thought. Nanakorobi yaoki, which uh, is a Japanese saying that simply means fall down seven times, get up eight. And I think that is a good uh, thing to keep in mind during these uh, COVID times. Thanks for listening.